Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Making the Most of Your Salvation, with a message titled, Knowing Your Union with Christ. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I began a series called Making the Most of Your Salvation, and just like a computer software package, we might not know what we have available to us. So many Christians are completely unaware of what they have and what benefits are theirs through their salvation. So as we began this series, I gave you the image of a voting booth, God having entered a voting booth and elected us from eternity past. Then we moved to an accountant's ledger, God having credited our evil unto Christ and his cross and having credited Christ's righteous life to our account. Next, we spoke of a hospital operating theater. God has replaced our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. We've received a heart transplant. The Bible calls that regeneration. Then a courtroom justification. We're declared innocent before God's bar of justice in Christ. And finally, we move to a living room and given the image of adoption. We've been given a new legal status. We are now sons and daughters of God. And today I want to move on to a new image. Today, the image is that of a marriage altar. The doctrine we're going to discuss is a difficult one. It's called union with Christ. And unfortunately, this has been one of the most neglected benefits of our salvation. But by the time we're done, you might say, why has this app not been told me in the past? Well, because many believers find this a difficult one to understand. So let's begin in an easy place. Union with Christ essentially means that every single believer has a relationship with Jesus. You might say, well, I already knew that. Well, I'm sure that you did. But relationships are complex things, and they're not always easy to define. You know, to simply say, I have a relationship with someone, well, that doesn't yet define what kind of relationship you have. You have one kind of relationship with your doctor. You have another with your neighbor, still another with your spouse, another with family members, another with your business partner. Each is a true relationship, but each relationship functions very differently from the others. Simply to say we have a relationship with Jesus, well, that is saying something, but it doesn't say enough. What kind of relationship do believers have with Christ? So let me tell you something that you have read in your Bible many times, but perhaps you just read past and didn't notice. 216 times in the writings of Paul, Paul describes the relation we have with Jesus by using the phrase, in Christ or in him. Indeed, the phrase in Christ, that for Paul, is the most prominent description of exactly what kind of relationship we have with Christ. So our scripture today, I've simply chosen a text that illustrates this. And while I'm reading, would you notice every time that Paul uses the phrase in Christ or in him? Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Skipping to verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass. Then verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
Then on to verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Well, In this, you should see in this text that in 11 verses, Paul uses the phrase in Christ nine times. Here it refers to our blessing, our election, our adoption, our inheritance, our predestination, the outworking of God's purpose for us, and even the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives who seals us unto salvation. All of these things happened, he says, in Christ. In other words, all the benefits we have as believers come out of this very unique relationship with Jesus, which Paul calls being in Christ. Remember, he repeats that phrase 216 times in the New Testament. It's not a minor thing. But just so we don't misunderstand this union with Christ, that is, we are in Christ, is also put the other way around. See, in Galatians 2 verse 20, one example among many, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, watch this, but Christ who lives in me. I'm not only in Christ, but Christ is in me. So it's this language can be summed up by the phrase we, that is in our salvation. We've been united with Christ. We've been given a union with Christ. Well, let's go through some biblical examples of the idea of union. First, think of union of the three persons in the one God. In John 14, verse 10, Jesus says, I am in the Father. The Father is in me. Same language speaks about the unique relationship of the Trinity. Now, those of you who know your theology well will also know that the relationship of Jesus, human and divine natures, are often called a unity as well. There are other unities. Think of the union between our soul and our body. You know, Arthur Pink put it in this wonderful fashion. Listen to what he says. He says, what intelligence, speaking of God, what intelligence would or could have conceived of joining of an immaterial spirit and a clod of clay? Indeed, but that is precisely what we are, body and spirit united. There are numerous other examples, and we don't have time for all of them, but since we're already in Ephesians, remember in Ephesians 5, we have another union. It's marriage the union of Christ, then, and his church. Here we have an illustration. The illustration is of a marriage altar. Now, we've all been to weddings, and during the ceremony, at some time, the pastor said words that sounded like this, the two shall become one flesh, and what God has joined together, let man not separate. But here's a curious thing. Just after the pastor announces that two have become one flesh, and then they're walking side by side down the aisle, one might say, well, They don't look any different than they looked when they came in. They came in as two separate people, and that's how they are now. But what may appear as no different is actually quite different after all. You know, if they're doing it in a godly fashion now for the first time, they're going to celebrate intimacy, something forbidden before this time. Also, they now share one last name, and now they're going to share one bank account. Their entire economic future is bound to each other. When one spends, they, in effect, both spend. Their relationship has changed. They share relationship together. They even share a common status, a common station in life. Yeah, they're still two separate people, but never as before. They're united now. 
That's exactly what happens when believers come to Christ. We are, in effect, married to Christ. Of course, that's not the only New Testament image of this. You know, in Ephesians 4, 15, and 16, Christ is called the head, and we are called his body. And in John 15, Christ is called the vine, and we are called the branches. So how does one pull all that together? Well, one writer has said that it's like an umbilical cord stretched from you to Christ in heaven, or like an an astronaut who journeys out from his spaceship joined to that ship by the life-giving cord. See, we're united with Christ in exactly that way. He is our life. Our very ability to survive depends on him. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. Let's say that our union with Christ implies that we have a unique relationship with him. He's the source of our life, and our life and his life are inseparably bound together. His life is breathed into ours, and we know that without him we can't live. You know, 1 Samuel 18 verse 1 says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit or united to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. It's a great description of how it is between us and Jesus. Our souls are knit together. We now share a common destiny. Like a weld that unites pieces of steel, that weld is stronger than the metal that holds us. We're welded to Christ. So now, let's consider the extent of our union with Christ. You know, first notice that the roots of the union are in eternity past. Ephesians 1 verse 4 said, And he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Listen to this. In God's purpose, Christ and the church have been eternally associated parts of one design. So then you were in Christ before you were born. Indeed, you were in Christ before the universe was born. The Father already united you to Christ before infinite ages. He always thought of you this way. Wayne Grudem said, He, the Father, did not first choose us and later decide to relate us to Christ. Rather, while choosing us, He, at the same time, thought about us as belonging to Christ in a special way, as being in Christ. So, in the mind of God, when He thought of us before creation, He thought of us as eternally belonging to the Son. I hope that staggers your imagination. This past year, I've taken the opportunity to author a new book entitled Making the Most of Your Salvation. You know, in this day and age, I can't imagine a more important topic as it provides insight into the essential benefits of your salvation and in so doing provides a message of hope and joy so needed in challenging days. I think it's true to say that many of us walk through our daily journey with Christ uncertain of really all that he's done for us through his death and resurrection. You know, we question and we struggle because we don't understand the breadth of what Jesus has provided for his people. Ten key benefits I'll share, including our adoption, the Holy Spirit, and our assurance. I want you to know all that your salvation provides. So for the month of February, Back to the Bible Canada is offering to send you my new book, Making the Most of Your Salvation, for free, just for asking. So request your copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. You know, I had said that in God's eternal purpose, God had already united you with Christ before you came to be. But now I add that while the extent of our unity is in eternity past, the basis of that unity is what Christ has accomplished for us. 
that, of course, is speaking about the work of the cross. Christ has purchased a people for himself. Christ purchased you for himself. The implications are enormous. They include holiness and purity. But we can't linger here. We, we need to add that union with Christ implies another feature. See, the roots of our union are in eternity past. The basis for our union is in Christ's work on the cross. But there's a daily felt experience in this union with Christ. See, in the end, I think it's fair to say that union with Christ is an experience. It's so much more than an objective truth. It's an existential encounter. It's experiential. It's felt in everyday life. If my life and the life of Christ are bound together, we have to answer, what does it mean? Personally, how do I experience that? You know, please now, don't think that I'm about to give you a mandate. That is, if you're united with Christ, you should live that way. Yeah, you should live that way. But that's not the point I want to make here. Here's what I want to say. If my union with Christ has its roots in eternity past, well now, I shouldn't then think that the outcome of this union is in doubt. So let me share four things about that which my union with Christ guarantees. First, I'm united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Romans 6, 3 to 5. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united, there's the union word, united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, you might say, does this mean that my union with Christ means that in some way I participated with Christ in his death? Yeah. When Christ died on the cross, you died along with him, meaning that your old self, your old sinful nature died on the cross with Christ. You were united with him in his death. You were in Christ when Christ was being nailed to the cross. And when you were baptized, that's what was said. Now, wait, you say, I I wasn't alive when Jesus died. Well, true. But you weren't alive in eternity past either when God already thought of you as united with Christ. And here's the point. You are so bound with Christ that his death is your death. Let me put it personally. I, John Neufeld, was put to death 2,000 years ago. That is, the sinful, God-hating, rebellious, sinful John Newfeld was nailed to Christ's cross 2,000 years ago when Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders nailed him there. He and I shared the same fate. Boy, I hope you heard that. This is not a process where I'm slowly learning to be holy like Christ, but because I am joined to Christ, united to Christ, Christ is in me. I am in Christ. I simply can't continue to sin for I'm dead. Furthermore, Christ's resurrection guarantees my own. I mean, how can I not bodily rise after I die? I mean, it can't be otherwise, for I'm united with Christ. When Christ rose victorious from the tomb that Easter morning, since I am united with him, I rise with him. Uh, Let me help you understand the amazing implications of that. Paul does that for us in a later verse in Romans 6, verse 11. He says, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word for consider can also be translated as reckon or think or see yourself in those terms. Does this mean I'm sinless? No, not now. But it does mean something right now. See, look at it this way. Imagine a slave in the ancient world, and he is by law placed under his master. If the master is cruel, that master might beat the slave. If the master wants the slave to work until 10 o'clock at night, 
and then up at four o'clock in the morning and then work an 18-hour day. That's what the slave must do. If the master decides not to care for the slave when he has health problems, the slave has no recourse. If hard work is killing the slave and the master wants it, that's what happens. But now imagine the slave is set free. Someone has purchased his freedom and he has a piece of paper in his hand and it says, Freedman. You know, the next day the master comes by and the slave automatically lowers his eyes to the ground. The master says, go to my house, fix the roof before I get home. So what must the slave do? Well, the battle is in his head and only in his head for objectively he's a free man. So here's the question, how will he reckon? How will he consider himself? If he follows his old built-in pattern, he will say, yes, master, and do it. But if he remembers who he now is, he will reckon or consider or think about himself as a free man. He can tell the old master where to get off. He can say, you fix your own roof. I'm going to go down to Starbucks and I'll be reading my paper and I'm going to be enjoying the sunshine. And that's how it is with you. Your union with Christ is union of death and of life. You're united with him in his cross. Reckon yourself that way, says Paul. (laughs) That's the important thing. What else? Second, you and I have been united with Christ in his accomplishments. John 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, let me borrow a phrase that I've already used. I've said, everything that belongs to Jesus, with the exception of his deity, now belongs to me. And it's a mouthful, but now let me make another statement. Everything that Christ does, with the exception of displaying his deity, I also do. I'm united with him in his accomplishments. His deeds and my deeds are united. Now, apart from that union, I can do nothing, for the power does not flow from me. It flows from him into me, but I'm united to him. Okay, I'm united with Christ in his death and resurrection, in his accomplishments. Is there anything else? Well, we haven't even scratched the surface yet. Third, I'm united with Christ in fellowship with other believers. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So union with Christ is also union with every single person who is in Christ. And think of the implications of that. First, there is neither Jew nor Greek. For that matter, there's neither Chinese or Korean or Russian or Spanish or German or English or Filipino or Arabic. All racial distinctions simply can't exist among Christians. We are united in Christ. We are one people, not many people. We are now one. There is neither slave nor free. We make no distinction between someone who has made millions, someone who has a PhD, someone who never got past grade 11, someone who's living in poverty. No distinction is allowed between us, for Christ is not divided. Again, the same is true with male and female. The world may constantly whip gender issues to death, but not here. We're one in Christ. That's what the church is. We're the body of Christ. Christ is our head. We're his body. There is a unity. What else can we say? Well, fourth, we might say, I'm united with Christ in experiential awareness of God. 1 John 5.11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So then the same eternal life that exists in the Son also exists in us. Now, there are so many more, but let's add one more. Fifth, I'm united with Christ forever. 
Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, this union with Christ covers everything, from eternity past, to the cross, to the living out of my faith day to day, to my own death, through to my own resurrection. It covers my accomplishments. It overcomes my temptations. It covers the moments of crisis. It also covers the times of uncertainty. In my doubts and fears, they are quieted. In him, I have a guarantee of sins forgiven and victories in the future. And here's why. My future and Christ's future are united. What happens to him and what happens to me are one and the same. Can I get that into my heart and soul? I am in Christ. Christ is in me. We are a union, and therefore nothing but nothing can separate me and any child of God from him. And that's a benefit to your salvation. So stop fearing. Stop your anxiety. Stop with your uncertainties. Stop concentrating on your failures. Reckon yourself. Think of yourself united with Christ, for that is what you are. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you this. When we think about our death, what then does it mean to be in union with Christ? Yeah. Well, of course, the Bible does tell us that we are united with him in his death. Well, we're united with him in everything. Uh, We share a common life together with Christ. I mean, that's the the beauty of this wonderful, wonderful truth. Um, You know, Ben, I've, I've often said that, you know, when I'm dying, I'm going to forget Uh, that this is my opportunity to be united with Christ in this way. Christ died for me, uh, and he chose death on my behalf. Now, you know, when I die, I'm not choosing death. It's happening to me. But I'm hoping that some pastor will stop by at my bedside and say, you know, Newfelt, you need to remember uh, that this is given to you as a gift so that in eternal ages you might know what death feels like. And then when you look at your Savior, Jesus, you might say, Ah, that's what you willingly chose for me. So Christ is asking us to enter into uh, what he has done for us and experience it with him so that we might glorify him fully. It's a wonderful truth. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us tomorrow as we continue our series, Making the Most of Your Salvation, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Every day we partner with radio stations across the country, like the one you're listening to right now, to air the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada. We want to thank the faithfulness of our radio partners and remind you to thank them as well. We also want to thank our listeners from across Canada who support this ministry with your encouragement and financial contributions. Your thoughtfulness ensures Bible teaching is made available in your community and across Canada as Back to the Bible Canada remains steadfastly committed to teaching the life-changing truths of the Bible. To our radio partners and listeners alike, thank you. This ministry of Bible teaching on radio could not be accomplished without you. To learn more about the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada and all the resources available, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.com. 
www.thepeopleshow.ca.